everybody. This is Tina again with Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. And I have a special guest from the UK with me today. Hello, Kirsty. Hello. Kirsty is a nurse. She's an uh, emergency department nurse, which we call the emergency department here. I'm not sure what you what you guys call it in the UK. Uh, we call it the um, A&E department, which is accident and emergency. Okay. So the accident and emergency or the A&E. Here we have a channel called A&E. So Kirsty actually said that a few minutes ago and I thought she was talking about a show that was on the A&E channel. So I'm totally, I was totally lost there for a second. But um, so the A&E department and here we call it the ED or the emergency department. Some people call it the ER or the emergency room. A lot of non-medical people call it that. So, but they're all interchangeable. And that, and so whatever, whichever one we say, that's what we mean, right? Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> so Kirsty reached out to me on Instagram. She's just, she was a listener and she was just like, hey, she's, we've gone back and forth a couple times and she was like, hey, if you um, need, if any of your listeners are interested in what things are like in the UK, as far as nursing goes, you know, just let me know. And I was like, oh my gosh, you, you should come on and, and talk about it. Cause I know that, they are going to be interested in this. There are a lot of nursing students, a lot of new grads that probably are interested in traveling at some point. I know right now that's probably not um, really an option at this point, but some hopefully in the future that will, all of those things will start happening again. And people are curious, you know, what things are like other places. So after the show, we're going to record a little, I guess, a little mini episode and and talk about that sort of thing. So I think that'll be fun. And then we'll put that on the website for you guys. So we have a couple of really interesting stories. We took them from the stories from the UK. And the first one is quite a doozy. I've come across his name several times over the past couple of years of doing stories because anytime I'm researching, you know, doctor, death, patients, dying, anything like that. Oh my goodness, this guy is always at the top of the list. And I've looked at him before. And even when Kirsty mentioned him, I was like, I honestly don't know if maybe I've done his story before because I knew I had thought about it and even done some research. And I've done so many that I've they all kind of run together sometimes. And I, I can't keep up with which ones I have done and which ones I just researched, but then actually didn't talk about on the show. But as it turns out, we haven't done it yet. So it is a fascinating story. It's very sad, of course. And the guy we're talking about today is Harold Shipman. So what do you, just whenever you first mentioned him, Kirsty, is this somebody that everybody in the UK knows, like as soon as you say his yeah. name? Yes. He Notorious. Infamous in the UK. He is the original bad doctor that everybody would have heard of. Most people, are, uh, when they go to nursing school or it was in, it was so huge in the news. I don't really know anyone who doesn't know of him. Um, yeah, he's probably killed the most amount of patients that I know of so far. It's interesting because when I, I think before I went to nursing school, I don't remember knowing about doctors and nurses who did this sort of thing, honestly. I don't remember hearing about it in the news. I don't remember people talking about it. And then in nursing school, I don't remember them talking about it either. It wasn't until after I graduated that I started learning that people did this sort of thing and started looking into it and was shocked to find out how common, and that's not common, but if you think about in the grand scheme of things, uh, as far as the ratio of how many healthcare professionals there are versus the very small people, number of people who do things like this, it it is very rare but still, any, I think it's shocking. I think it was the first case like it of 
a GP uh, general practitioner who had gone and and done this in the UK and it was all over the tabloids. It was in the news. It was absolutely everywhere. I guess it makes sense. Yeah, because people, well, in the news, you know how the news is. They, they Any opportunity to bring up something like that and get people all stirred up again. My thing is, I think that it's important for us to talk about these things because if you aren't aware that a doctor could be capable of doing something like this, then people Mm. just trust, they trust inherently their doctors and their nurses to take care of them and to not only to not, I mean, I think that they're aware someone can make a mistake, but I don't, I don't think most people would ever think that their doctor or their nurse would deliberately do something to harm them. And that's so I think scary. that really changed um, people's perceptions of their doctors and knowing that they could actually challenge things and they could ask questions. Well, I think that's good. It's good that people are being more aware and in this um, age of the internet and the ability to have information on our fingertips, we as healthcare professionals get a little frustrated sometimes when our patients Google things <laughs> and then try to diagnose themselves. Diagnose and then and, and and not just question, I mean, questioning uh, something, I always tell my patients, like, when they apologize for asking a question, I'm like, don't apologize. You're, yeah. that's, but you're being an excellent patient right now because you're actually taking an interest. Instead of sitting there with a glazed look in your eye when I'm trying to explain to you what this medicine does, and a lot of people are just looking at me like, please be quiet and give me the pill. I don't care. And I'm just like, come on, you know, you <laughs> take an interest. This is your body you're putting this medicine into. You need to yeah. know what it does and what it's for. So I love it when people ask questions. So um, I definitely think there's a balance there for people, you know, to yeah. take an interest, but also definitely have some faith in the people that are, are that are helping you because we did go to school to do this. Your doctors went to school for a very long time and most of them really do have your best interest at heart for sure. Yeah. So Harold Shipman was born in Nottingham, England, and he was raised by his parents. They were... Sorry, I, I was laughing because you said the way you were pronouncing the, the place he was born. How do, you, how, do you, how do you say it? Uh, we kind of don't pronounce the H. Oh, really? So uh, Nottingham. Nottingham. Is that better? That's much better, yeah. I'm going to start over then, you guys, and do, try to do better. So Harold Shipman was born in Nottingham, England. And it was raised by his parents. They were working class. They were devout Methodists. He was the middle child of three. Oh, it says middle child, you know, the middle children. As <laughs> I am I'm, a middle child. <laughs> I know. I'm kidding. I have three children myself. <laughs> he was a good student. He played rugby. He went to high pavement grammar school. If that's significant, I don't know. He was a long distance runner and was the vice captain of the athletics team at his school. So sounds like just a, a typical. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When he was 17, he watched his mother die of lung cancer. So that's definitely not easy for someone. He, yeah. was, he was really close to his mother and he remembered the doctors administering morphine to try to ease her death. That's interesting to me because that's something that's still done today for someone who is nearing yeah. death. It's it kind of hasn't changed really, has it? I'm sure there were other things in there as well, but mm-hmm. morphine such a well-known mm-hmm. uh, drug that it probably was the only thing that stuck in his head. So as people are administering things, 
it probably wasn't just morphine, um, mm-hmm. but perhaps he's just seeing them coming and uh, administering fluid in a syringe over and over again. Mm-hmm. And he's just thinking that it's a normal amount of morphine. Mm-hmm. He eventually got married to Primrose May Oxtaby and had four children. So still just kind of a, you know, typical person getting married, having kids. In 1970, graduated from Leeds School of Medicine. In 1974, took his first job as general practitioner. His senior partner was named Dr. Grieve. I'm assuming that's maybe how you pronounce that, noticed some odd behavior in him. He was having multiple blackouts and he remembers that he had been called to Dr. Shipman's house after he passed out in the shower. So then he was diagnosed with epilepsy and they he was deemed unable to drive, which is, that would be really difficult as a doctor to not be able to. I mean, it's difficult yeah. for anybody. I mean, let's just be honest, to not be able to drive. Yeah, as a general practitioner, a GP, mm-hmm. way, when he was practicing, uh, a lot a lot of GPs would make uh, home calls. So they would go to people who are homebound, who can't actually leave the house. Mm-hmm. Um, so it would be very useful for him to to drive. So it would make his job very difficult if he couldn't drive, especially the area that he lived in. It, it's not a major, major city. Uh, it would have been very useful for him to drive. So it would have restricted his work. Well, he happened to have a wife who was willing to volunteer to drive him around every day, which that's a big sacrifice for her to make. A dedicated wife. <laughs> so about the time he hit his year mark, he was caught forging prescriptions for Demerol for himself. Which is pethidine. We uh, we don't call it Demerol. We we go by oh. the generic names of drugs. We don't use the brand names. That's a much better practice. Yeah. It confuses me that when he passed out or when um, that he didn't just phone an ambulance because he doesn't have to pay for that. Like it's free. Oh. So if someone's unwell... The first, so if my partner, if he um, blacked out, I would definitely phone an ambulance. The, why, the, there was no one else that I would phone. I wonder if he did that because he didn't want, he, I, maybe if he had someone come to his house, then he's not going to get officially checked out, like with blood work and that sort of thing and find the drug in the system. I don't know. But then um, no one would have diagnosed him without taking bloods. You can't diagnose someone with epilepsy without having a workup, right? And maybe he waited long enough to go for an exam that he would have had the drugs out of his system and then they would have checked his blood and then they would be like, well, I don't really see, you know, there's really no indication here that you would, you should be passing out as far as anything in in your blood. Yeah. Maybe something like that buy himself some time by calling a, f- a friend over as opposed to calling... Someone official. hmm Okay. So after he was caught forging these prescriptions for, for Demerol, he was taken, which we don't even have that anymore in the United States, but he was taken to court and he admitted to eight charges of obtaining drugs by deception. And he asked that 74 other offenses be taken into account. And I was saying how I didn't really understand what that meant. And you were explaining before we started recording that that basically means that if he would just admit to the most egregious offense or the the highest yeah. offense, then... The others should just be taken off the table. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it would mean less time in court and, and less... 
offenses on his record. Um, yeah. And his attorney's fees and all of that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that does make sense. They found that he was overprescribing medications at a local nursing home in order to be able to get the extra drugs and then forging prescriptions also. He did end up going to a drug rehab in York and paid a fine of 600 pounds, which is like somewhere around 700 and something US dollars. Yeah, but this was like uh, 20 years ago. So it would have been different. 30 years ago, it would have been quite, quite, it would have meant more to him then. It's not the same equivalent now. I see. Because I didn't think that sounded like a lot of money. No, it's not. Not not now. But <laughs> not now it would be a yeah. lot more. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in 1979, he took a position as a general practitioner at Donnybrook Medical Center near Manchester. He worked alongside six other doctors there. And at his interview, the doctors were called admiring his honesty about his drug addiction. And they wanted him to have a second chance. You know, that I can I could see that for sure. I could just imagine him bragging about it though mm-hmm. and thinking, oh, I'm I can get away with it. I might as well tell them. And they've just mistaken it for some form of honesty. Um Yeah, I think I could see him doing that. Someone who who is as conniving as he is, yeah. who obviously as malicious as he is, I could see him using it to his advantage and by yeah. making making it seem like I'm an honest person. I've turned I've I've overcome that problem and they would look at him like wow you know you would just so candid like Mm -hmm. he would be a great person to have on board and right yeah (laughs) I don't think you no so he was a very active member in in this new community of Hyde which where where he was living which is just outside of Manchester Um, he was well respected as a doctor was part of many organizations there locally he was a local school governor I'm assuming what is that sort of like um like here we have a superintendent that would sort of like be over all the schools in one little area. He had that role. Is here that's sort of like a it's almost a political role. It's a Yeah, it is. Yeah. Okay. But I, I wouldn't say it's as big as it is in the States. Okay. Yeah. It is a local political type role. It's not a, a huge deal, but I guess a lot of people probably use it to get into politics as sort of like a beginning. Yeah. He was very popular and had a long waiting list for people to see him in his practice. Mm. So in 1991, he dropped a surprise to his colleagues. He was going to start his own practice and take 3,000 patients with him. His new practice was not far from Donnybrook Medical Center. This is kind of a sleazy thing to do, I feel like. And it's surprising that he managed to recruit so many people without his other other colleagues finding out or hearing anything about it. Yeah, until it was too late. Apparently he converted an old shop on Market Street into his medical yeah. office. That sounds kind of kind of cool actually, kind of uh, quaint. The physicians he worked with of course were shocked that yeah. that he did this. What a it just he sort of strikes me as the kind of person who comes into your life and uses you to get whatever he wants to advance his career, his life. And then he's he doesn't care at all to just like ruin everyone and and take oh no you know I mean you can't really have any anyone else's feelings into consideration if you've done what he has done like mm-hmm. you you can't think of anyone else but yourself yeah and he's gone into this new job and taken over and taken all of their all of their clients with them without any regard of anyone else so it really kind of 
explains who he is as a person. It really does. And so now, of course, before he has six other physicians working alongside him who are going to be privy to some of his practices, but now he is working alone rather than in a partnership. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no one's able to check up on him. No Mm -hmm. one... um, there's no one to keep an eye on him and ask, why are you ordering this many medication? Like, you shouldn't be ordering a surplus of this. Why do we have so much? Mm-hmm. And there's no one to check up on his uh, diagnoses and things like that. He's just on his own. He's just running his own show. Exactly. Not, not great. No, it's it's not a good idea. So one of the one of his patients, her name was, was uh, Kathleen Grundy. She apparently died of, quote, old age, um, as many of his other patients did. But she was different. The day before she died, she had an appointment with him. And the following morning, he had an appointment to go to her and obtain a blood sample. So this apparently was when he kind of had premeditated that he was going to do this. He did kill her at that time with morphine, and it's not actually the first patient that he just flat out murdered. And so her death was the turning point in his killing streak because... The interesting thing, uh, Mm -hmm. in the area that he worked and lived, they had a a mortality, the the average mortality age for people in that area was about 10 years younger than the national average. So all of his patients who were dying of old age, people weren't outright uh, outright suspicious of it because it kind of went along with their average age of people dying even though it was significantly lower than the UK as a general it it, it wasn't surprisingly low for that area wow that's interesting yeah. it's almost like because nobody would would be think no one would think anything of it i guess no. if they typically if if people typically died of quote old age in their 80s and then all of a sudden that that number dropped by 10 years significantly with the same doctor taking care of them, people would be like, um, that's odd. But then again, he's also practicing by himself. And so are there people paying attention? You know, maybe there isn't anyone looking. But if he if there, if he's happens to be, I mean, is this just a stroke of luck for him or did he do this on purpose? Did he recognize that he could get away with it because of this? It's just that's an interesting fact. I'm but, sure he would have known um, because mm. you have to report as a GP, you have to report if any of your patients have died in the community, you have to report it. Mm. Um, so the statistics will show that, that the people he is looking after are dying. But then again, with the geographic age and the geographic of people dying, it it wasn't unusual. Interesting. It just didn't send up any red flags. No, but now... Things are a lot stricter there mm. because of him. Yeah. Good. I mean, that's at least one good thing that came out of this. Yeah, her, yeah. her death was a turning point because that is when the police really did start paying attention to what was going on with him in particular. He forged a will that put all of her property into his name. He turned in the will on her behalf less than a week before she was found dead. Yeah. Uh, that's definitely suspicious. And it was written with a typewriter, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and it wasn't in her handwriting. And I think the signature was way off as well. So in the UK, you guys call attorneys solicitors. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Because I used to, um, 
I remember watching a movie a long time ago and I there was a man that he was standing in the front of the, front of the mirror and he was talking to himself and he was saying, you are a solicitor. And I thought, oh my gosh, what are you saying? Because it's very different in the United States. A solicitor and someone who solicits are two different things. <laughs> <laughs> I, was so, I just remember thinking, I don't think that word means the same thing there as it does here. <laughs> but so for those people uh, in the United States listening to this, that a solicitor is the same thing as an attorney. And but it was the uh, the attorneys who noticed first that this was a very that it was very odd for him her doctor to have turned this in a week before she actually died so they I, contacted her daughter i think her son was the solicitor uh, well then that makes a lot more sense yeah um her son was like what <laughs> why would she know this isn't her this isn't her handwriting this isn't anything to like no, my mother would never have done this. She's never expressed any wishes like this, but he was a solicitor and then he took it further and got other solicitors involved because you can't really represent your own mother. People just think you're grieving. So he took it further. What a bold move and, and such an unintelligent move, really, for someone who... I, yeah, I don't so think Chipman knew um, that her son was a solicitor. Oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> I don't think he knew that. Okay, that makes more sense because I'm just thinking, how in the world did he think he was going to get away with this? But maybe if he doesn't realize that her son is going to know her signature. Um, yeah. Yeah. Maybe that was the beginning of his downfall, which is good. But mm-hmm. he tricked her into signing the will during surgery. He acted like it was a medical consent form. Yeah. And then the the witnesses that signed believed that it was a medical consent form as well. So they didn't thoroughly read it or even look at what they were signing. Yeah. I mean, I have a hard time imagining this. If if I'm signing well, anything, I'm I'm going to at least glance at it. I may not read every single word, but... So yes and no. I also worked in a day surgery unit for quite um, for a while whilst I was doing my training. I worked as a, like a nurse's assistant kind mm-hmm. of thing. And part of it was preparing people to walk them through to theatre. And one of my checks was to make sure that people understood what they were um, signing up for when they were going to surgery. A lot of the older generation would just be like, well, doctor knows best. That's fine. I'll, mm-hmm. I'll do whatever you say. And even still now, I do have patients who are just like, yeah, sure. If that's what the doctor wants to do, then we'll do that. Because <laughs> they just trust their doctor so much. Implicitly just trust them. And this man apparently was a very, appeared to be a very nice man. He came across as a very caring, kind person. Think about the 3,000 patients willing to leave that practice and go follow him to a new practice. They loved him and adored him. So he was just that typical psychopathic type of person who is able to really hide who he really was and show this other person. So that was this phony person, but then he could manipulate people to get what he wants. So the detectives noticed that there had previously been concerns voiced about the amount of deaths at his patients from the funeral homes. So the funeral homes are are noticing this. Like, there, yeah, there really wasn't enough evidence for them, for the the detectives to proceed, even if it was suspicious. But then when Kathleen Grundy's case came up and they found that she actually had not died Mm. of old age, but actually 
And that always, it's always interesting with that whole die of old age thing. So my son actually said this to me the other day. I know he said something about dying of old age and I'm like, that's, it's, I mean, I understand what you mean. So I don't, you know, I'm not trying to split hairs or anything, but it's just like people die of something. It's like, you know, even you don't die of being old. (laughs) Even if you're 112, you die of something, you know, it's not Mm -hmm. just because you're old, but aging has a part in it for sure. Sometimes yeah. a big part in it, but <laughs> but I think that that it was quite common to just put that on a death certificate. Sure. And again, since him, practices have changed and things have gotten tighter because of what he did. So at least yeah. some good has come out of what he's done. Absolutely. But they they did discover when these de- detectives, when the police figured out that she died of a massive amount of morphine that had mm-hmm. been in her system, they knew that they needed to go and look at his other patient's records because already they kind of had some suspicion thrown onto him. They didn't have any real evidence, but maybe, and maybe even thought that's probably, they're probably just making something out of nothing. You don't have any reason to say that. But then once this happened, they realized, oh, okay, we need to go back. You know, the investigators, as these things usually do, there were several patterns that they started noticing, um, because he seemed to target a certain type of person. So older women, mm-hmm. single, mm-hmm. The, they typically died about an hour after a visit with him. They, a lot of, a lot of them seemed like they would have died in a living room chair, still wearing their day clothes or died in surgery. So it just sort of, they were looking at this like, um, a pattern. It's definitely a pattern. And and that, that would make sense if he had come up with some system that worked mm-hmm. for him. Yeah. And I think the older ladies were much more likely to just go along with what he was saying. Yeah. Especially the age range that he targeted. They were much more less likely to challenge anything he was doing, especially mm-hmm. if they were alone in the home with him. And they probably didn't have many people around coming around to see them. And maybe he would find it easy. Well, and if they weren't married, then they're not going to have, their husband is not going to be there to take the estate if something happens to them. You know, of course he needed them to be single for that reason. And and they would be, the women would, I would think he would find it easier to manipulate them into signing something. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Unfortunately, because they're so trusting. That's what makes me so mad. He's just really playing on that, the trust factor, the fact that, oh, they trust me because I'm their doctor. They think I would never do anything. It's just unbelievable, unbelievable that someone would be so cruel. That's mm, horrible. So the detectives went through records of over 150 deaths of his patients. And in the electronic records, it revealed that different things about the patient's health had been taken out. So records of surgery visits had been removed and other things were changed. And they think that he was trying to hide things because he wanted his story or their the the way that he played that made it seem their death happened to match with their records. Yeah, because so if just, uh, if he's not in there, it looks less suspicious that he has done something. So he's taken visits out and tried to modify it so that it looks like he's not really had too much to do with them. Mm-hmm. Just miraculously passed away with nothing to do with him. Mm-hmm. Is, I think that that's actually illegal in the UK to modify records without having anything in there. You need to say that you've modified a record or that something has been withdrawn. 
you can't just withdraw it and not say anything. Right. He got so bold as he sort of, as he got toward the end of, of this, of his murder yeah. streak, if you will. I mean, he's done almost 300 people. He is, you know, he thinks he is untouchable. Like He, he does. You know, he thinks just, no one's ever going to suspect him. He has no a system. Get him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Foolproof. There, no one will ever think he is just above the law at this yeah. point. And he even got to the point that he was recording a patient's death electronically before he even went and killed them. That is just bold. I mean, I can't even I mean, believe. is it bold or is it stupid? I, I have no idea. It's, <laughs> it's just everything. I don't know. I can't. It, he was so incredibly arrogant. And yeah. that's obviously that was his downfall because he he just thought he was just reckless and became just yeah. so the number of deaths that he had in 12 in a 12 month period was two and a half times the amount of other local doctors and when they searched his home they found bags of old jewelry of his victims hidden and they found the typewriter you mentioned a typewriter earlier and they found that typewriter that was used to write her fake will so Apparently, in old typewriters, there's a way to trace those. Like, to they would certain... have just used the key imprints to see mm. if they matched up to all the letters. Because, of course, you can replace the um, the keys that go into it. But I think they would have matched it to the letter that had already been typed out by her because she didn't have a typewriter. So they were saying, mm. "Where where did this come from? She doesn't have anything to do this. Why wouldn't she have written it out? Why would she have gone to the effort of finding a typewriter?" writing this and then sending it off instead of writing it, handwriting. Mm-hmm. Um, they matched it to his. It's definitely some old school detective work for sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so multiple bodies, as you said, were exhumed to test the cause of death. All the bodies had high amounts of morphine in them. That was apparently drug of choice when it came yeah. to how he killed his his victims. And when detectives brought him in for interviews, he was very arrogant toward them. He talked down to them, was very condescending. He treated them as though they were not at all as smart as he was. And he just didn't think anyone was going to catch on. He was just so arrogant. He thought he would outsmart everyone. And it just is very satisfying to me to think of him talking to those police officers that way and then them being the one that really had the last laugh because he... And they get to arrest him. Yes, so one of his patients, as far as um, kind of thinking, like how would someone, how would a doctor be able to get this much morphine and it not at some point become obvious to someone, yeah. surely? There was a patient named, by the name of Jim King who was wrongly diagnosed with cancer and after three months of chemo. So we did a, a show That's on this insane. here a couple of weeks ago where there was a yeah. doctor deliberately diagnosing people with, with uh, cancer in order to be able to charge. Yeah. You know, oh, this was not like that. It's just that he was diagnosed. And then after three months of chemo, he was given the clear, I think. Or right. He was no, told that he never had cancer. He was yeah. told that, but he didn't tell King. And he continued to prescribe mass, massive amounts of morphine, but then he kept that for his own supply, yeah. which is... I think he was also doing it with the nursing home. You know, uh, previously you said that he was, yeah. uh, he was ordering a massive, like a surplus of medications to the farms, uh, to the nursing home. Um, I think he was just taking back the stock and just being like, oh yeah, I, I can, I'll send it back to the pharmacy, but probably not doing that. Right. And that was just another... Um, 
way that he really just thought he was just so genius, you know, coming up with his plan. And he probably thought, oh, well, no one would ever find out that I'm doing this. Yeah. But as, as these types of things go, you might be, and he's obviously extremely intelligent. He's a very intelligent person. Yeah. But it doesn't matter how intelligent you are when you're trying to do something like this. There are so many different ways that you could make one simple mistake that you're going to bring yourself, you're bring, shine the light on. Yeah. yeah. So just the, the idea that you could be absolutely perfect in everything that you do for something like this just kind of so, tells me that he, yeah, he's intelligent, but not as smart as he thought he was, clearly. Because <laughs> if you're that smart, you know that there's no way to really, truly be perfect. And that's really what you have to be to get away with something like this. And you, I don't think anyone will ever get away with doing these things. It's just a case of when you get caught. Yes, of and course. Everyone makes mistakes either, you know, every day people make mistakes, but someone's going to get caught regardless. You can't keep killing people and expect nothing to happen. Yes. I always tell people the majority of healthcare professionals are just wonderful giving people who sacrifice themselves, who will, you know, go all day without a bathroom break or without lunch to take care of other people because they can always think of something else that their patient needs. But for those few handful of horrible people that might happen to be listening to this podcast, if you're thinking about doing something like this, please remember the outcomes of most of these stories and how they always get caught. And, you know, is it really worth it? If you're really that horrible, please go get another job. Just get out of the healthcare professional. We, we just don't need you there. <laughs> we just don't need you we there. We don't want you. <laughs> so on January the 31st in two, the year 2000, after... Six days of deliberation, the jury found him guilty of 15 counts of murder and one count of forgery. Justice Forbes subsequently sentenced him to life imprisonment on all 15 counts of murder with a recommendation that he never be released, thank goodness, Mm. to be, and they were served concurrently with a sentence of four years for forging her will. And then 10 days after his conviction, the GMC, the General Medical Council, formally struck him off its register. Yeah. So I guess that's I just sort of a... 10 days, but... You know. I know. I'd, it's sometimes some of these, and it happens here in the United States as well, sometimes these boards, you're just like, what were they thinking? It's like they're <laughs> literally sitting there. With, like, what are you waiting for? Just do it. Two years later, Home Secretary David Blunkett confirmed that just months before the British government ministers lost their power to set minimum terms for prisoners. Um, so apparently he, the the whole life, I guess, the whole life tariff, it's, it's a little confusing. The wording is different. It's so uh, different. Yeah. So they set for each each one of his crimes, they've set a uh, amount of time for him to be in jail. So they wanted them to go one after the other so that there was no chance of him ever leaving. So they used to be able to set a minimum set amount of time for someone to spend in prison completely for each crime. They can't do that anymore. It has to be reviewed. So they made sure basically that he was not going to leave, that he was going to be in there for the rest of his life. Good. That's really good. That's good news because sometimes, man, it can be frustrating. We do some stories like this and we find out they didn't spend very much time in prison. It's just, oh, it's infuriating. And you just think, why? Why is it like this? So while authorities could have brought many additional charges, they concluded that 
a fair hearing would be impossible to, in view of the enormous publicity surrounding the original trial and 15 life sentences already handed down, rendered further litigation unnecessary. So, I mean... Everybody uh, knew who he was at that point. He wasn't going to have a fair trial, not that he deserved it, but um, he right. was... It would. I, I, I can see where the the family of the victims, the other yeah. uh, 200 people who he killed, at least, if not more, yeah. um, how it would be kind of, it would be hard, you know, to to think that, that your family member didn't get, yeah. 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 But but I think at the same time, just knowing, you know, you don't have to go through all of that, the trial and, and everything, and everybody knows, everybody yeah. knows, including him. So he did hang himself in his cell in his cell at Wakefield Prison at 6:20 a.m. on January 13, 2004, on the eve of his 58th birthday. Mm-hmm. He was pronounced dead at 8:10 a.m. The prison service statement indi- uh, indicated that Shipman had hanged himself from the window bars of his cell using bed sheets. And then apparently they had an inquiry and they did discover that he killed at least 215 of his patients between 1975 and 1998. Mm-hmm. And that during that time when, when he was in Todd Morden and, and in Hyde. So not, this is not something that was just the the re, more recent years of his practice. It actually went all the yeah. way back to the beginning. I think since, like, since he's been practicing, it wasn't that one day he just decided to do it. I think it was always, he was always doing it. Wow. He just didn't get caught. It makes you wonder if maybe yeah. he didn't do something even while he was in school. Yeah, as a medical student or something. Well, that's our bad doctor story for this week. It's a, it's a bad one, but one of those kind of cautionary tales for everyone to sort of be aware that unfortunately these people do exist. These really yeah. horrible, evil people. Yeah. But we'd have a really cool, good nurse story for for this week, and we've every we started every week here on the podcast trying to feature someone in the healthcare. Uh, profession who is black, whether it's a nurse or a doctor. So far, we've done nurses just just because that's who I've been focusing on the past few weeks, but uh, I'm sure we'll get into other healthcare professionals as well. But there's just a lot of stuff going on. For those people who are listening in other countries, I know you guys are aware of all of the stuff that's going on in the United States right now. And it's all, it's very, it's very disturbing and upsetting. And it's, shocking but at the same time there's some actually actually some positive changes that are coming yeah. because of it and we want to just keep the conversation going uh, one of the campaigns on Instagram was share the mic now and mm-hmm. i participated that in that a few weeks ago by having a young lady who's a nursing student here in the state that that i live in um, is also a good, really good friend of mine to come onto the podcast and just have time for her to just say whatever she wanted to say. And that was just so enlightening and so much fun to have her on. And I just wanted to keep that going and just continue. Yeah. So this this story is about a princess, an Ethiopian princess. I thought that was so fascinating. I've loved stories like this though. I'm kind of into that fairy tale sort of thing anyway. <laughs> it's sort of an escape, you know, just something that's just sort of almost unbelievable. It's completely to our lives. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Imagine being a princess. Her life is definitely now, you know, as you guys are going to hear, it's, it wasn't all 
roses, but sunshine and roses. But it's really almost like the stuff a movie would be made of just because, you know, her being a princess, but then going and doing all the things that she did is really cool. So she was an Ethiopian princess. She was also a nurse. Her name, oh gosh, I practiced this a thousand times before we started, um, but her name is Princess Sai. 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 Okay. And not even going to try to say the last name because <laughs> I didn't practice that Selassie, at all. I think. Princess Sai Selassie. Selassie. Okay. That's a little bit more straightforward. But she was an Ethiopian princess. She was born in uh, the year 1919. This was a little back in the day. And she was the youngest daughter of Menon and Emperor Halle Selassie of Ethiopia. Her father was a distant cousin of the ruling Empress Zadichu and was next in line to the throne was still regent of Ethiopia next line, line to the throne. So kind of just a really, I mean, interesting person to, to be sure. Yeah. But she was quite regal. Like it really mm-hmm. wouldn't have been expected of her to be a nurse. Nursing is not the most glamorous job in the world. and <laughs> It's not something you really expect royalty to be doing. Definitely not. She was, in fact, the first person of quote, royal blood to become a nurse. I thought that was interesting too. As a young child, she lived with her six siblings in a compound known as the Little Gebi, which is translated the Little Palace. And definitely in the country that she lived in, all around that compound was, you know, abject poverty. It was... But it's unlikely she would have left her her, uh, her little palace right out there. Oh, for sure. So all around her, outside of that compound, you have people who are very, very poor. Mm. But she was sort of isolated in her world, of course. From the age eight, she went to school in England and Switzerland. And during vacations, traveled with her royal relatives to France and Germany, living, you know, quite the royal life. And she would learn each country's language, as well as, of course, English, yeah. As, you know, time went on, there's with, with all these things, I'm kind of uh, fast forwarding because I, I want to be in into more of what she was doing. But she yeah. worked with the new Ethiopian Red Cross and worked as a, you know, a volunteer. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of cool. I think that that might maybe that was when she first, you know, working as a volunteer with the Red Cross, maybe got the the bug, I guess. I think so. She must have gone in as like an auxiliary nurse or like a nursing assistant and then kind of one wanted to go further with it. And of course, being a princess, no one's going to say no. I just think that's so interesting that yeah. someone in her position would be would be willing to do you know, what you have to do. But she does have grace when she's walking. I wish I walked around the uh, the ward like that. I definitely do not. <laughs> I know. She did carry herself so well. I mean, it's just really interesting just to watch her. So at age 17, Sai decided that she wanted to become a nurse at the ripe old age of 17. Up until that time, no Ethiopian woman had ever trained as a nurse and no woman of royal blood, of course, had ever worked at the profession. Her father believed in the long run that his people would benefit from that. So he gave his consent. Mm -hmm. And then another English woman, Lady Barton, the wife of former British minister uh, to Ethiopia, arranged for her to interview with the matron of London's great Ormond Street Hospital for sick children, 
where she started training as a resident student nurse in August of 1936. Uh, So Great Ormond Street is a very well-known hospital in the UK. It's a children's hospital. It's very exclusive here in the UK. To get a job there would be very impressive. Nice. What I also love about her is that she didn't want any favors or special treatment because of who she was. She wanted to just work alongside the other student nurses. (laughs) So uh, Princess I did start working for the British Red Cross when she, when she graduated, which I think is, uh, it's kind of, it kind of speaks to her. She kind of wanted to go back, you know, as a nurse. So she was a volunteer, probably not able to do as much, maybe didn't know as much, certainly. Yeah. And I, I bet she was eager to kind of go back and be able to do things maybe the right way. It's interesting. It is. It is interesting. And uh, I think that for her, you know, she probably, and, and you know, at that time, I think that there was, it was more common for people to do nursing skills without being formally trained. You know, yeah. it was more, yeah. especially in this situation where you're dealing with, you know, yeah. wartime and, and injured people and they just had to do what they had to do to get by, yeah. you know, and train people as best they could. But then I would imagine when she went back, just seeing it total, it would just be totally different. Well, in April 1942, she got married. She married Colonel Abai Ababa. He was a former member of the Emperor's Imperial Imperial Guard. And Mm -hmm. she met him in England. And she told an Englishwoman journalist that she intended to carry on her work of establishing hospitals and medical service throughout her country. So she had a lot of really important goals and a lot of big things that she really wanted to do. And there's just no telling all of the amazing things and accomplishments. I have no doubt that she would have been able to do. But unfortunately, she didn't have the opportunity because less than four months after her marriage, she died of a hemorrhage that she suffered during a miscarriage, which is just so sad. It's believed that she would have survived if she had been able to get the proper medical attention, but for whatever reason, she wasn't in a place that she was able to. So it's really sad. But to honor her memory, her friends in England later established Ethiopia's Princess Sai Memorial Hospital and Nurses Training School on a site donated by the emperor. I think that's really cool. Yeah. The neat story. The nice story. It's a a shame that her life was so short, but she made such an impact in such a short time. Mm -hmm. She did. She sacrificed so much of, you know, that she she could have just, she still could have done a lot of really good things. And a lot of uh, people who are in situations like that, who are, you know, maybe in situations of privilege, born into wealth or into royalty, they Mm -hmm. do a lot of great things and wonderful things for our society for their community or for people who are underprivileged. And yeah, so I don't, I don't want to minimize that at all, but she just was not afraid at all to humble herself and really get her hands dirty and do some really difficult work. So I really applaud her for that. And I'm really thankful for her. And I'm so thankful I found this story when I was just looking through it. I was like, wow, what a story. This is right up my alley. I would love to watch a movie about her life. Yeah, for sure. Her short life. Yeah. Sounds like a (laughs) Oh, doesn't it? I really wish that somebody would get a hold of the story. It's wonderful. It would be such a good story. She's so young. I mean, I know it's sad, but... It would be like uh, the parent trap kind of thing, swapping with someone. Mm Mm-hmm. 
It really would. It would be, it's just, it literally is the stuff that movies are made of. Just that whole, the nurse going in, uh, oh, the, the princess going into nursing school and not yeah. wanting to be treated differently. But then there's all the drama, you know, that would be happening because there's, <laughs> you know, going to be those people who are, are just going to be mean or whatever. And then the whole the love story part of it and everything, all the amazing things. It would just be such such a good... Yeah. Somebody listen to this. Please do it. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess that'll wrap it up for this episode. It's been such a good episode. I really appreciate it. And of course, afterwards, we're going to have a little discussion that we'll post. But um, as far as this little episode goes, we'll, we'll wrap this up for now. And mm-hmm. appreciate you so much, Kirsty, for coming on. Thank you for having me. And you guys know you can... Find us at Good Nurse, Bad Nurse on Instagram and GMBN Podcast on Facebook, or you can come to our website at goodnursebadnurse.com. And we're really soon going to be having some merchandise. My son has bought all kinds of stuff to make t-shirts and stuff. So we're going to let him start making some t-shirts and some merchandise and stuff. I have like the, or my little... um you have mugs and like a tote bag on there already. So Yeah. So we're going to, we're going to see what all he can come up with. It's not on there yet because he's still kind of designing some stuff, but we'll see. Well, I want you guys to also remember that even if you're a bad girl or a bad boy, (laughs) be a good nurse, please, and a good doctor, for heaven's sake.